With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. It's a Tuesday PFTM podcast. We're trying something different during football season. It took me a while to figure out exactly how to do this, but sometimes every once in a while an idea comes and you run with it and hope that it works out. MDS joining me on Tuesdays against his will. He's handcuffed to his computer for the duration of the PFTPM podcast. MDS, welcome. I know we've done this before in the format of just you and me talking about whatever. It's going to be more structured today. Are you ready? I think I am ready. I'm new to this whole structure thing, so we'll see if I can manage not to break any rules. I am new to this whole structure thing as well. Usually it's just flip on the machine and talk until I'm done talking. So we're going to try to follow a little bit of a formula. And I'll tell you what you're going to do, because I always say, tell you what you're going to tell the people what you're going to say, then tell them and then tell them what you told them. Here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about some headlines, a couple of big stories coming out today from our perspective. We are going to play for you an interview I did earlier today, literally just minutes ago, with Juju Smith-Schuster of the Pittsburgh Steelers. We're going to give out some awards for week two, and then we're going to answer some of your questions. Only the best. It's not going to be just me answering question after question after question. That's lazy, that's easy, and it's exhausting. So that's how it's going to unfold over the next however many minutes we are able to continue doing this. And let's begin with... The news that came from the New York Giants, they announced that nobody leaked it. Nobody got the five-minute heads up. Nobody from the team contacted any of the insiders and let it out of the bag. The team disclosed it on their own terms. Daniel Jones, starting quarterback for the New York Giants, starting this weekend, week three of the 2019 NFL season. MDS, what was your immediate reaction to the news? My reaction is this is a win-now move not a build for the future move. And you usually don't say that when the veteran quarterback is replaced by the rookie. But I think the way Eli Manning is playing right now, combined with the way Daniel Jones looked in the preseason, I believe that the better player right now is Daniel Jones. This is not about which guy is going to be there for us two, three, four years from now. It's about winning this week. And I believe Daniel Jones gives them a better chance to win right now than Eli Manning. And that says something about what kind of a future Eli Manning has, which is to say not much of one. Well, you know, what it also says to me is why the hell didn't they do this week one? And my reaction in the aftermath of the draft was very simple. This guy's the sixth overall pick in the draft. If he performs in a way that justifies their faith in him as the sixth overall pick in the draft, he should be the week one starter. In a fair and square competition with Eli Manning, he should win it. Otherwise, you pick somebody else. You take Josh Allen, the pass rusher. You take some other player, not Daniel Jones, unless you think he really is worthy of that spot. So he proved himself worthy of that spot, and I think he proved himself worthy of it before week one. They just refused to give up on Eli Manning because of that sentimentality that has infected their treatment of him the last two years. And they finally had that spell broken. I'd love to know how that spell was broken, but I think somebody had to have some sort of an intervention with John Mara, the co-owner of the team, to get him to finally give up. It's like, it's, I, I, I want to think of a good 
a good metaphor here, but I, I, I don't, I, the one that popped into my head, I probably shouldn't use. So let's just say they had an intervention with John Mara and got him to finally get like his blankie. Let's say that he had to give up his blankie because his blankie is old and tattered and it needs to be washed. And when you wash it, it's going to fall apart. And they finally ripped it out of his hands. And now uh, we see what Daniel Jones can do. And, and I agree with you. It's not, not that I expect them to turn this season around, but why wait until they're out of it, right? If Eli Manning's your quarterback, you're already out of it. And at some point, you're going to be mathematically eliminated, and that's when you go with Daniel Jones. Well, that's just dumb. Put him out there now if you don't believe that you can be competitive with Eli Manning. And the fact that they drafted Daniel Jones tells me that they know deep down they can't be competitive with Eli Manning. And this really goes all the way back to when Ben McAdoo benched Eli Manning for Geno Smith. And at that time, it became pretty clear that something weird is going on where the football people who watch Eli Manning in practice every day feel like he has declined, and yet the ownership feels like it's not time to move on from him yet. And so I think it was pretty clear when Ben McAdoo got fired the week after benching Eli Manning that the ownership were the ones really driving the, hey, this guy won two Super Bowl MVPs with us. We don't want to unceremoniously dump him. And the coaching staff, and now we're on the second coaching staff, is saying, look, this guy doesn't have it anymore. Time to move on. Yeah, I I agree with you completely. And I think the backlash from the fans was part of what scared them away from keeping Eli Manning on the bench and drafting one of the quarterbacks in 2018 like a Sam Darnold and sticking with Eli, giving him one year without having someone there hovering. But the moment the guy's there hovering, that's the moment that you need to be getting him ready to play. Eli Manning had to wait nine games in 2004 before he replaced Kurt Warner. Two games is what Daniel Jones had to wait. Now, speaking of hovering, let's flip it over to Eli Manning because he's going to be hovering on the sideline if he's still a member of the Giants. And I don't know how this should play out. There are many options. He retires, he is cut, or he gets traded. and uh, or, or he stays there as the backup the rest of the season and maybe gets a Joe Montana Week 17 game like we saw in 1991 on his way out of San Francisco. And it's one last love fest for Eli Manning and thanks for the memories and see you later. But what do you think is the more likely option between being cut retiring, traded, or sticking around with the possibility of a, of a December game or two where he gets to say goodbye to the fans? I think the most likely is he stays right where he is now on the sideline and remains on the sideline until perhaps, as you say, maybe week 17. We're assuming the Giants won't be competing for a playoff spot in week 17, but maybe that would be the time that they give Eli one last chance to play and uh, show what he can do in a Giants uniform for the last time. I don't see anyone trading for him just because he hasn't shown that he's good enough. It, It is interesting that there are so many injuries to quarterbacks around the NFL right now that you could see maybe it wouldn't be surprising if some phone calls are being made about, hey, Eli Manning is available and the Steelers and the Saints and the Jaguars have all lost their starting quarterbacks. And those are all teams that think that they have playoff or at least thought heading into the season that they had playoff hopes. And uh, maybe one of them would have some interest, but I I just don't see that happening. I don't know that anybody wants to trade for Eli Manning right now. Uh, His contract might be tough to fit under the cap for some teams. 
I don't know that that's going to happen. I think it's most likely he's just going to be on the sideline the rest of the year. Yeah, he's got $10.14 million in remaining salary. A new team would absorb that in order to trade for him. There's also a no-trade clause he would have to be willing to waive, which really doesn't matter for a starting quarterback, right? He, th- th- there is built into the status a no-trade clause because the guy doesn't want to go. You don't want him uh, because he's not going to be the guy that you need, the guy who's going to embrace the role and be a leader and put in extra time, show up early, stay late, and just provide that example to all the other players. And I think that if the Jaguars had Nick Foles on season-ending IR and thought he wasn't going to be back at all this season, then the Jaguars could make some sense. But they're content to ride with Gardner Minshew until Nick Foles is back. And then if you have Eli Manning, when Nick Foles comes back, what the hell do you do with Eli Manning? So really, the Steelers are the only team right now. Or the Colts. But the Colts are fine with Jacoby Brissett. They've paid him. So it falls to the Steelers. That's the one team that knows the starting quarterback is out for the year. And... They've got Mason Rudolph. You're not going to pay $10 million for the guy to be a backup. So I I agree with you. I don't see a trade uh, that is viable in these circumstances as of right now. Something could come up between now and the trade deadline. There could be another quarterback injury, a guy who is out for the year, and it would be less of a burden at that point to take on an Eli Manning from a cap standpoint because the Giants keep paying him one game check after another. But for me, I I really think the best scenario is – for Eli Manning to retire and and not get his full salary. Because if you retire, you get nothing. I think if they cut him, they, well, I know that if they cut him, they owe him the full $10.14 million. I, I'd like to find a middle ground between 7 and $9 million where he gets the parting gift, he retires, and you don't have him hovering over Daniel Jones. See, that's, that's the real issue. What is Eli Manning's disposition going to be? What's his demeanor going to be? Is he going to embrace being the big brother to Daniel Jones? Is he fine with whatever the team wants? Or or are we going to see the Manning family mafia go into overdrive and start pushing back against this like they did two years ago? That's the real question. And if there's going to be any disruption from Eli, Peyton, Archie, or Cuppa, then then I think you need to get Eli out of there. Yeah, and it would the worst thing for Daniel Jones would be the feeling that the first mistake I make, the first interception I throw, the first open receiver I miss, everyone's piling on and saying, go back to Eli. This kid's not ready yet. That would be the worst thing for his development. You know, there have been situations. I mean, I'll go way back to a hardly a comparable situation, but it's one I remember quite well was when Scott Mitchell was benched in favor of Charlie Batch in Detroit. And one of the things that Bobby Ross, who was the coach at the time, did was he dumped Scott Mitchell all the way down to third string. There was another, uh, a third, there, they had three quarterbacks on the active roster. He made Mitchell number three, and he said, I did that just because I want Charlie Batch to understand this is not something where first time you make a mistake, I'm putting Scott Mitchell back in. You're the starter now. And I think coaches need to really commit to a young guy when they pull this switch. It cannot be Daniel Jones is our starter, but oh wait, if he has a bad first half, he gets benched. You know, remember when Nathan Peterman got got given the starting job in favor of uh, Tyrod Taylor, and he only lasted a half, and it was a terrible half, and it was justifiable to bench him, but I really don't think that's how you develop a young guy, by teaching him that one bad half and you've lost your job again. 
And that's a great point because the worst thing the Giants could do is play ping pong with Eli Manning and Daniel Jones. Once Daniel Jones is the starter, he's your guy. No different than Sam Darnold becoming the starter for the Jets, Josh Allen becoming the starter for the Bills, Baker Mayfield with the Browns. He's the guy because he's the guy that you believed in. It'd be different if he was a sixth-round pick. He was the sixth overall pick. You have a lot invested in him. This is a pick for the present and for the future. And you screw up the future if you start benching Daniel Jones or even thinking about it. So, look, that's why I keep coming back to Eli's got to go. Why keep him around? What's the value? What's the gain? The only value, the only incremental benefit of Eli Manning still on the team is if Daniel Jones gets injured. That's it. Um, I don't think it's worth it to keep Eli Manning around under those circumstances. And you know what? Maybe they can come up with some sort well, here's the problem. If he retires, the deal can't be, hey, we're going to bring you back if Daniel Jones gets injured because we learned from the Andrew Luck retirement, if you retire after showing up for training camp and unretire, you got to pass through waivers. Not that anyone would claim the Eli Manning contract on waivers, so maybe they could still try to pull that off if it came to it. But I wouldn't reside in that fear. I'm more fearful of Daniel Jones being screwed up mentally than being screwed up physically and not having a good backup. I want Daniel Jones to know he's my guy. And there's a chance that he doesn't really know he's my guy as long as Eli Manning's hanging around. And what kind of a veteran will Eli Manning be to this young guy? Because there are veteran quarterbacks who fully understand that part of the job is help the younger guy. I mean, Josh McCown has lasted a very long time in the NFL because everyone knows he loves helping out younger quarterbacks. And if a if a younger quarterback comes along to replace him, Josh McCown is the guy who volunteers to stay late watching film with him at the facility. Is Eli Manning willing to be that kind of quarterback? Or is Eli Manning going to say, hey, I've accomplished way more in the game of football than someone like a Josh McCown has. I don't need to be helping out the guy they pushed me aside for. And if that's Eli Manning's attitude, I don't know that he's helping the Giants right now. And that's really interesting to monitor. Yeah, it absolutely will be. Because, look, when when Eli Manning did not want to play for the Chargers in 2004, Archie was the one who stood up and said, Eli should not be a Charger. I've heard time and again over the past 15 years, Eli was the one who didn't want to be there. Archie's the one who took the bullets and let Eli not come off as the petulant, spoiled brat, although I think any player that doesn't want to play for a given team, especially high in the draft, should be willing to come out and say, sorry, I don't want to play for that team. They should exert that power that they necessarily have. In this case, maybe you do have Archie saying, I can't believe how the Giants treated him, or Peyton saying something. And what Eli needs to do, if he truly is okay with this, he needs to tell both of them, don't say a word. I'm fine with it. I have to support Daniel Jones, and I'm going to go out the right way. And if they want me to go out as the number two quarterback, I'm going to be the best number two quarterback that I can be. And that means nobody in the family saying anything publicly or privately to undermine this move and to lobby for me to be put back on the field, even if Daniel Jones throws five interceptions and a half like Nathan Peterman did. That's the challenge. And unless the Giants are damn sure that that's the way it's going to operate, they got to get rid of Eli Manning. Yeah, and, you know, quarterbacks, and it's easy to understand why, have typically not particularly wanted to help the younger guy who comes along. The Brett Favre doesn't really feel thrilled that Aaron Rodgers has been brought in to be his replacement. I mean, a lot of quarterbacks have have indicated that that's not what 
we want to be here for. That's not the, the job that I thought I was signing up for. I thought I was signing up to play, not to hold a clipboard and help a younger guy develop. So you understand that, that some quarterbacks feel that way, but if he's going to feel that way, I don't know that I want him on my 53-man roster anymore. Well, there's a quarterback out there that's been on no one's 53-man roster or 90-man roster, for that matter, since the end of the 2016 season. Colin Kaepernick became a free agent in 2017. He was ignored by all teams, but for some chatter of possibly joining the Ravens, that fell apart. He had a visit with the Seahawks. That fell apart. For most of the last year, year and a half, it's been crickets around Colin Kaepernick. And I look, I'm at the point where I have to force myself – to think about him in these settings because they've managed to push him so far out of sight that he is out of mind. And by successfully ignoring him, MDS, for two seasons, one of the best arguments against considering him now is, well, this guy hasn't played football in nearly three years. Yeah, because you screwed him and kept him out of the league. And when you see a guy like Devlin Hodges get promoted from the Pittsburgh practice squad to the 53-man roster with no consideration given whatsoever to even kicking tires on Colin Kaepernick, it's obvious that no one is going to give this guy a shot. And I'd like to think that the desperation of trying to win football games would at least get someone to talk to him and see if he'd be interested in coming in and learning the ropes and seeing if he can contribute to the effort to win football games. Yeah, and, and we have 32 teams that have shown no interest at all. And as you say... We're at that point now with quarterbacks getting hurt and undrafted rookies are getting called up from practice squads and guys who the vast majority of football fans have never heard of are now quarterbacks on active rosters and Luke Falk is playing most of a Monday night game. We're seeing these guys get meaningful time early in the season because there are already a lot of injuries and the fact that Colin Kaepernick hasn't even been brought in for a workout anywhere this season speaks volumes about where he is. And that is just, he's just not even on that list of quarterbacks that teams put together for who should we consider when we need someone. I vividly recall a night in December of 2012 when Colin Kaepernick ran circles around the New England Patriots defense. And oh, by the way, the Jets play the Patriots in New England this weekend, and they are 22.5-point underdogs for that game. The Cowboys are 21.5-point favorites over the Dolphins. MDS, the first time uh, in 32 years that there are two teams that are that uh, extensively favored over an opponent, and only 30, I think the number was 35 times since 1966 where a team has been a three-touchdown favorite and two of them coming up this weekend. And I think there's going to be more like this because the Dolphins play the Patriots again, the Jets play the Patriots again, the Giants play the Patriots, the Dolphins play the Jets. There's a lot of cross-pollination between the AFC East and the NFC East, and that's where the worst teams right now are if you look at the Giants, the Jets, the Dolphins, and I'd throw Washington in there as well. Yeah, and we should add, by the way, you mentioned it was 32 years ago, the last time there were two uh, in the same week that were this big of underdogs. We should mention that was during the NFL strike. And the reason there were such big spreads that t- at that time was that some teams were using a bunch of scrubs off the street and other teams had pro bowlers crossing the picket line. And so that was why there was such a disparity in 1987 
the reason for it now is totally different. There are just some really horrible football teams led by the Dolphins. The Jets aren't tanking the way the Dolphins are, but they got very unlucky with their starting quarterback getting sick and then their backup getting hurt. Um, and, and of course, like you said, the Giants look real bad. Washington looks real bad. There are some bad football teams, and then there are some teams that can score a lot of points, like the Patriots, like the Ravens, like the Chiefs. We may be in for a year when we see more blowouts than we've seen before, and also when we see more games where it feels like one team doesn't even have a chance. Not not most of the time in the NFL, you think to yourself, even a bad team can knock off a good team if couple bounces go their way they they come in with a great game plan the other team has a down week this feels more like when Alabama faces Georgia Southern and everyone knows it can only go one way even if Alabama plays its worst game of the year and Georgia Southern plays its best Alabama is still going to win we now have some games in the NFL where it feels that way Yeah, and it's not supposed to be that way in the NFL. We're in the salary cap and free agency era where the gap between the best team and the worst team is supposed to be uh, minimal, and it's all supposed to flatten out. And you have a team like the Patriots MDS that has cracked the code in a positive way and knows how to game the system, knows how to win games consistently, knows how how to maximize the salary cap by getting their best players to take less than maybe they could get on the open market. And now we're seeing some of these teams that are clustering at the bottom. Only the Dolphins seem to be doing it intentionally, but there are some bad teams right now, and it shouldn't be that way. And you start stripping away quarterbacks, and it gets worse and worse. And uh, that's where we are with the Dolphins. That may be where we are with the Jets. That may be where Washington ends up. And who knows what will happen with Daniel Jones and the Giants. But it's not going to be a good 100 season for multiple teams, which is going to make for some blowouts and some ugly football as the season unfolds. All right, we're going to take a break. One of the teams that has lost its quarterback for the year, the only team that has lost its starter for the full season, the Pittsburgh Steelers, with Ben Roethlisberger out. Juju Smith-Schuster, the team's MVP for 2018, stepping into a key role even at the age of 22. I spoke to him earlier this afternoon. Here is the full interview with Steelers receiver Juju Smith-Schuster. Joining us now, the 2018 Pittsburgh Steelers MVP in his third season in the NFL, one of the most recognizable names and faces already, despite not doing this for very long. He is receiver Juju Smith-Schuster. Juju, great to talk to you again, buddy. How's it going? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Well, it's doing great. We appreciate Tide very much for making you available. We'll talk more about what you're doing with Tide coming up. But but obviously, this is a, a a good time for us to talk to you. I don't know how much you want to be talking to media, given what's going on with the team. But from your perspective, Mason Rudolph in, Ben Roethlisberger out. What's your biggest challenge as you get back to work tomorrow to get ready to play games with a different quarterback? Um, you know, just building that chemistry. Um, I've, I've, obviously, I've played with Nate Mason before, and we have those times where, you know, um, Ben in the practices, he had to rest up. And me and Mason, we go at it, and we, you know, we have that connection, but that chemistry, um, you know, it's his first game, his first start, obviously, and it'll be away against uh, the 49ers. So it'll be super excited to see what he can do and what we can show the world. How much of a leadership void is created by Ben Roethlisberger being done for the year, and who replaces him in that capacity? Man, yeah, he he will always be our leader. He's always he always has that role. Obviously, um, he'll still be around us, around the team, and still being able to, you know, talk to us and you know, coaches up. Um, our other captain, obviously, is uh, Marquis Pouncey, a guy 
you know, on offense, you know, he shows by his actions and he's very vocal too. Cam Hayward is our defensive leader. So we have so many guys on the team who's vocal and who's able to fill those roles. It's got to be strange for you, Juju. You got to look around and say, man, the world has changed a lot in a very short period of time. What does that do to you from the standpoint of maybe forcing you to to step up and be more of a leader? Do you feel that obligation falling on your shoulders, even though you're still fairly young in comparison to your teammates? Uh, most definitely. Obviously, you know, being um, the guy in our room, um, just based off, off of, you know, the amount of plays, the amount of experience that I have with this team um, is unbelievable. And, you know, it's 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 crazy because I'm a guy who's 22, talking to guys who are 28, 25, uh, who's a lot older than me. And for myself, you know, it's just me, myself being more vocal for the guys in my room and, you know, as a team, you know, I just got to step up and make those plays and show by, you know, my actions and even say a few things. When you were named team MVP last year, did you feel that that kind of elevates you and gives you the credibility to say more and do more from a leadership standpoint? Um, not necessarily, not necessarily. Honestly, for myself, you know, I thought of it as, you know, it was unbelievable honor, you know, to receive this. Um, but, you know, very humbling for my teammates and, you know, for those guys, you know, everything that we've been through. Um, but like you said, as of now, you know, with the situation that's going on, you know, being more vocal, be more of a leader and, you know, speaking up more. How much will the offense change with Mason Rudolph under center? I don't think it'll change a lot. You know, obviously we have our place set. We have, you know, the guys that we still have on offense, side of the ball in every position that we need. And I don't think a lot would change. Um, you know, when Seven was out there, he's a guy who can come up with plays on the field. And the no huddle was a huge factor, what he had in his game. And, you know, like I said, you know, this game right here, this upcoming game will show a lot. And I don't think a lot would change throughout, you know, throughout the season. Give us a sense, Juju, from a football standpoint, the difference between these two guys, how the ball comes out, how they throw it, how they drop back, how they survey the field. As you're running pass routes, what's going to be different when you look back into the, into the uh, pocket and see Mason Rudolph there instead of Ben Roethlisberger? Um, I, mean, I mean, you talk about a guy who's been in the league for 15 years and you talk about a guy who's been in the league for two years. A huge difference. Obviously, Ben has experience and he's played in big games. He played in situations where, you know, stir down and long and stuff like that. And Ben has a special touch. Um, his goal bars are very, you know, very beautiful, you know, running down for those. And, you know, with Mason, obviously, you have a guy who's able to do all those things. Um, but the difference is, is like the time and experience that they played uh, in their careers. How do you think Mason did on the fly being thrust into this on Sunday? From the outside, it looked like he did fairly well. What was your assessment of his performance? I think he did very well. You know, he, he you know, his number was called. He was on the field. He made those plays and he put points on the board. That's all that's all it's about. You know, we got in the red zone. We put points on the board and that's what's huge. You know, that's what we got to do um, on our office side of the ball. We got to convert more and dirt downs and move the chains uh, just so we can score more and, you know, keep the momentum on offense, special teams and defense. Give me one thing that Mason Rudolph does that you look at and say, you know what, he's got that down pat. He may have to work on other things, but this is one thing that he can do at the NFL level. Oh, man, those deep balls. He, he's really good at those accuracies, and he has the power to throw those deep balls over um, down the field. And, you know, I've seen him doing it in college with James Washington, so I'm not surprised that, you know, that's something that he's really good at. He said something yesterday that he was aware for a while that Ben was having some sort of an elbow issue. When did it first hit your radar screen that we may need to keep an eye on what happens with this elbow on Ben and we may need to make an adjustment uh, out of the blue during a game to a new quarterback? Yeah, so I, just, I was probably like 
during the game, actually, I noticed that, you know, he was grabbing his forearm. And that's when I was like, okay, wow, I mean, there's something serious going on. Um, with that situation going on, I was like, okay, he's going to come back, right? Because, you know, it's Big Ben. He loves the game. He's going to fight back, and that's what he usually do. And uh, when they pulled him, they put Mason down. I was like, oh, there's something serious. And then when I found out about the news, um, it wasn't – well, I didn't take it, you know, very lightly. I was, it was a tough one, you know, for myself uh, because I played with him for the past two years. And, you know, not to see a guy who loves the game so much goes down, but, you know, just a great lead, a great player all the way around. And, you know, for us, you know, in our room, Coach Tom is talking about you got to stay positive. You got to believe. And number two, and that's what we know we all do. We all believe in, too, that he's going to go out there and get the job done. From your perspective, this is all happening in a unique season where you're shifting from the number two receiver on the team to the number one receiver on the team. What differences have you noticed through two games and how defenses cover you, given that you're now the guy on the receiving depth chart? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of double team, a lot of, uh, you know, being being matched up with their best corner, uh, you know, which is it's awesome. You know, I have the opportunity to get some, go against some great guys and some great defense. But, you know, being able to be a, uh, to take those double teams and have other guys make their plays and all the way around. So uh, it's, it's a, a lot has changed, you know, being inside and outside and, you know, going against the number one guy. Do you hear more chatter now from defensive backs since they're focused on you instead of A.B.? No, not, not so much. Uh, I'm very, I'm pretty fun out there. I just say good job or I'll smile or I'll laugh. Um, some guys don't even talk. Like Gilmore didn't talk to me a lot. Um, but towards the end of the game, you know, he, he smiled at me. And I was like, okay, there you go. Like now you want to smile because like, obviously they won. But um, I'm not the type of guy to, to talk, uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But if it has come to that, I'm still not talking. <laughs> Hey, uh, you're with us today on behalf of Todd. Tell us what you have going on with him. Obviously, there's a big debate. Obviously, Todd has teamed up with the NFL and NBC. Um, there's a debate about, you know, when do you do your laundry um, on Sundays? And for myself, I do laundries on Tuesdays. Why? Because NFL Sundays are for the NFL, not for laundry. And for myself, I do laundry on Tuesday because it's NFL off day. It's the best way to go. I use Tide Pods. Why? It's so easy. You just throw it in there like a football. And there you go. Now you're scoring touchdowns because you can do your laundry. It's over. It's clean. Now you got fresh underwear. So now wait a minute. You're 22 years old, right? Yeah. And you st- and you actually and you're 22 and you do your laundry. I got a son who just turned 23 this weekend. He and he would not do laundry <laughs> if his life depended on it. You do laundry at 22, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I believe what I see it, it. Juju. Your son, need, your son needs to wash this. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's good. I'll tell him. I'll tell him. I'll get him some Tide Pods, and uh, he can throw yeah, them in the dude, in the Tide machine. Pods are so easy. He doesn't have to measure it or anything like that because you know, being 22, 21, you know, in college career, like your age, you're not really focusing on that. You just throw it in there. The Tide Pods are so easy. Way to go. The only thing easier. Hey, the only thing easier than the Tide Pod juju is giving the bag to mom and saying, "Hey, mom, wash my clothes. Here are the Tide Pods. You do it for me." <laughs> yes. Right. There you go. I, Hey, one last question for you. Mika Fitzpatrick, now a member of the Steelers, what was your, your reaction when you heard the news? I mean, I mean, you talk about a great player, you know, all the way around, play inside, outside. You know, I had to, I had the chance to play against him in college. And, you know, going against him, he's a very physical guy. I mean, a guy who makes plays, he's been making plays the past two years. And um, we a huge pickup for us, you know. Um, I'm super excited to see where they play him at or how they use him. Uh, but he's coming here making plays too. So and there's no doubt about, you know, the pick and – what they traded for. 
And his trade comes at a time when people are like, oh, boy, no Ben Roethlisberger for the season. It's kind of, I don't know what kind yeah, of year yeah, it is. Yeah. What, message, what message does it send to you guys that the team's giving up next year's first-round pick to get help right now on the defensive side of the ball? I mean, we, it's just for us. You know, our message to the world is that, like, we're not giving up. We're not – this is a huge year for us. And even though our our best player is out, that doesn't mean that, you know, we don't fight to go win, you know, more games and win our conference play, win the AFC, and then win the Super Bowl. So – you know, obviously, we're looking now. We're not thinking about the future. All right, buddy. Well, hey, it's Tuesday, so go do your wash. You already know, baby. All right, man. Good talking to you, pal. Good luck with everything. Yes, sir. You too. All right, thanks again to Juju Smith-Schuster and our friends at Tide for making him available to us on a Tuesday afternoon when he's got plenty of other things that he should be doing, not to mention his laundry. And i uh, got to take care of a, a one item of business here before we move forward. You can sign up to be an O Rewards member today and earn one point for every dollar that you spend. Receive your O Rewards twice as fast and on the go when you provide your email address. O Rewards members get $5 back for every $150 that they spend. It's fast, it's easy, and it's free only at O'Reilly Auto Parts. See the store or orewards.com for all the details. O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices every day. And if Sims was doing this, this is where he would sing the jingle. I don't expect you to sing the jingle. I will not be singing any jingles. All right. Uh, and that's probably good for both of us. Even better if I don't sing it. He, he, he lures me into his songs, which is a mistake for him and a mistake for me. Okay. Uh, next up, awards time coming out of week two and uh let me find my notes here let me find my list here of what we are going to be giving out the awards and it's gonna you know what it's gonna it may change every week i can't even remember what the awards were last week so uh it's not like we're giving out plaques or trophies here we're gonna do player of the week rookie of the week coach of the week and call of the week let's start with player of the week mds who do you have you know i have lamar jackson and he was a very popular player of the week in week one but this week Week two, I actually liked what he did a little bit better in week two because it was great that in week one he proved he can beat you just by passing if that's what he wants to do and that's what is expected of him. But I love seeing him use all of his talents, and he's a great passer and a great runner. He was the first player in NFL history to have 270 passing yards, 120 rushing yards in the same game. And it didn't feel like a fluke game where, you know, there were some defensive breakdowns that you can't expect to happen again. It felt like the kind of thing that he could do that every week. Obviously, he's not going to do it every single week, but he has the talent to put up those kinds of numbers, close to 300 yards passing and 100 rushing week after week. It's exciting to me to see Lamar Jackson do that. Yeah, and look, week one, the Dolphins never adjusted. They dared Lamar Jackson to throw, and he kept throwing, and they kept daring him to throw, and he kept throwing. This week, it was more of a variety, and I think that Ravens offense is going to be designed to take what the defense is giving them and to maybe keep the defense guessing as long as possible about what the play is going to look like. And there's a looseness. There's a quality to Lamar Jackson, a swagger. He had a run where he did a little high step. I mean, he really does have the degree of self-confidence that he needs to be a successful NFL quarterback. And this guy, in my view, he's in the MVP consideration with Patrick Mahomes, with Dak Prescott, with Tom Brady. I'd put him right up there, and we see how it plays out the rest of the season. But he's on his way. 
to possibly being the best of the five quarterbacks that was taken in round one a year ago. Better than Darnold, better than Allen, better than Rosen, better than Mayfield. I really do think that Lamar Jackson, based upon what we've seen so far, he's just got that, you know, MDS every year, a team comes out and they just have a quality. Now, not not just one, but you can sense it in the teams that do. And there's a quality, you know, to the Patriots, there's a quality. The Chiefs, there's a quality. Cowboys have it too. And I think the Ravens have it. And Lamar Jackson is the guy who's right in the middle of it. So I agree with you on that pick. But I have one of my own. I'm going to go with Odell Beckham Jr. as my player of the week. And, you know, because the quarterbacks always get all the love. They get all the praise. I thought about Dak Prescott. I thought about Patrick Mahomes. But I, I believe that without Odell Beckham Jr. last night, there's a chance the Browns don't win that game. There's a chance that that game's a hell of a lot closer than it was because it was that throw and catch. Nobody else on that team, nobody else in that building is making that catch with a guy draped all over him, possibly defensive pass interference, and maybe it would have been if the catch wasn't made. But that nonchalant one-handed catch that just reminded everyone, this guy's still pretty damn good. Now, it would have been better if they'd have gotten a touchdown out of that drive, but then it was the game-breaker, the 89-yard catch and run. There's no one else in the building that could have done that either. And without him... I don't know that the Browns consistently move the ball. I don't know that they deliver the death blow when they need to. And and they let the Jets hang around and hang around as it was with OBJ. So I think from the combination of the spectacular plays he made, and he gave us two very spectacular plays, those and the numbers and the impact, because that's not a 20-point win for the Cleveland Browns without him. It's maybe a one-score win without him. It's maybe a loss without him. So, you know, we... We've talked in the past about great moves from the offseason and the impact they're going to have on a team. We got a real glimpse last night of what OBJ can do for the Cleveland Browns. No doubt about it. I mean, Odell Beckham, uh, you see how special he is. He makes those highlight real plays that other players just can't make. There are certain players who have the, the, the physical tools, the gifts to do things that even the other great players in the league can't do. And Odell Beckham is just one of a kind as a wide receiver. You simply don't see that combination of the spectacular highlight reel catches and then with the speed in the open field to break an 89-yard touchdown. He's one of a kind. He is a very special football player. All right. uh, Rookie of the week, who you got? I'm going to go with a guy who I don't think got enough attention for what he did in week two. And that's Chase Winovich of the Patriots. And, you know, when he was drafted in the third round, a lot of people kind of said, boy, that's the perfect fit for the Patriots because he does a lot of things right. Bill Belichick likes guys who are versatile. And I really thought he did a phenomenal job of rushing the passer. He got a sack and a half on Sunday. He He's a very good player, both against the pass and against the run. And one of the things we've seen that I find very interesting about Bill Belichick is he doesn't necessarily place a high value on pass rushers. He let Trey Flowers walk in free agency. He traded Chandler Jones away. He doesn't necessarily think I have to devote a lot of money to keep the best defensive end in my defense because he finds guys like Chase Winovich in the third round of the draft who can do the same thing that that a more expensive, in the case of the contracts that Chandler Jones and Trey Flowers ended up getting from their second teams, much more expensive players, 
he, Chase Winovich is doing the same thing in the defense. And, and, and I was very impressed with the way he played. I think the Patriots got a great third-round pick when they chose him, and he's my rookie of the week, and I think we're going to see a lot of him this year. Amazing how good that defense has been this year, and he's been part of it. It's supposed to be a work in progress for the Patriots in September. Everything's supposed to be a work in progress for them, but they are uh, in the process of kicking the crap out of everybody they face. I'm going to go with my favorite rookie quarterback other than Kyler Murray, Gardner the Ginsu Minshew, just because, in my mind, the Jaguars won that game. But for the fact that it was in the Sam Rosen slot on the CBS hierarchy of games and only had the the minimal number of tv cameras if you have a a tv camera right down the line on that side where Leonard Fournette plunged across I think it shows the ball at least kissing the front of the goal line I think common sense tells us from the way his body was positioned from the angles we saw that that ball was at least touching the goal line that means the Jaguars would have won the game that means in my mind they did win the game and even though it wasn't high scoring the ability of this kid to come in and just unflustered, unrattled, be the guy that the Jaguars need to bridge the gap between week one and whenever Nick Foles comes back. I'm all in with Gardner Minshew. The numbers weren't spectacular, but he has an impact on that team. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching him face the Titans on Thursday night. Well, you know, we had an item at PFT about five months ago quoting Gardner Minshew's college coach, Mike Leach, at Washington State. And he was adamant that this guy is a good NFL quarterback. And he kind of had some scorn for the NFL scouts because he said NFL scouts are calling me up and saying, oh, you know, what is this guy? Maybe an undrafted free agent. Maybe a, maybe we'll take a look at him in the third day of the draft, which is where he ended up going. And Mike Leach said, that's crazy. This guy can play in the NFL. He has all the tools to play in the NFL. And through two games, it looks like Mike Leach was absolutely right. Gardner Minshew looks real good for a young guy who probably didn't get any snaps with the first string offense all offseason, stepped right in and has played pretty well. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I have been surprised and uh, pleasantly surprised. And, and, you know, the question becomes, if he is playing well when Nick Foles is healthy, do they give that collarbone another week, another week, another week before they, before they put him back on the field? All right, Coach of the Week time, MDS, who you got? I've got Kyle Shanahan, and I I really think that the 49ers are one of the pleasant surprises this season because they've won both games, and they've won them quite comfortably. And I think most importantly this week, they won doing exactly what Kyle Shanahan wants to do on offense. I think if you could have asked Kyle Shanahan on the day they traded for Jimmy Garoppolo, what is he going to look like if everything goes well in your offense – I think the way that Jimmy Garoppolo looked on Sunday is exactly what he's talking about. I think they had a balanced offense. I think Jimmy Garoppolo looked accurate. He looked poised. He wasn't making the mistakes we saw him make in the preseason that had a lot of people concerned. I'm impressed with Kyle Shanahan, and I think he may have been on the hot seat if they had gotten off to a cold start. Turns out they're playing very well, and I think Kyle Shanahan deserves a lot of credit. Yeah, and you know, my my preference will be to have a different guy for every one of these awards, even if you take the one that I was thinking of. But in this case, I'm going to reiterate what you said about Kyle Shanahan. They averaged 6.2 yards per attempt rushing, 12 yards per attempt passing. Everything they did was working, and that is... As Chris Sims was saying in the NBC viewing room, Kyle Shanahan cracking the code on the Bengals' defense, and the Bengals had no answer for it. And one very important aspect of why it went so well for the 49ers on Sunday, the decision to stay 
in Youngstown for the full week between the Tampa Bay game and the Cincinnati game. And I asked Kyle Shanahan what the biggest benefit of that was, and he said, look, when I was coaching East Coast teams and we'd go on West Coast trips, I never thought it was a big deal. And I always thought they made too much of coming West Coast to East Coast and playing at 10 in the morning local time. But he said it's real. And he learned last year it's real. And so this year they stayed in Youngstown. He said Wednesday or Thursday he could tell his guys were lacking energy. By Sunday they were ready to go. They were adjusted and they were adapted and they were, they were in the exact mindset they needed to be in and they were in the right condition from a body standpoint to go out and play that game and play it well. So I think that move was critical to generating that average eight yards per play, regardless of whether it was passing or rushing. And they've got another swing coming up later this year where they've got two games in the Eastern time zone. And I look for them to stay in Youngstown again. It's tough to get the players to buy in because they're away from their families the whole week. They're away from their routines the whole week. But when you play like they did on Sunday, I think any coach can convince his team to stay away from home for a full week. All right, call of the week, MDS. What do you have? Well, you alluded to it earlier, and for me, it's the Jaguars going for two there at the end of that game. And although it didn't work and they ended up losing the game, I think it was absolutely the right call. I think that when you're on the road against a team that you came in knowing you're the underdogs, I think it's better to try to win that game right then and there than just go to overtime and hope that overtime goes your way. Uh, I have no problem with the play call. Even though it didn't work, I think a run up the middle with with two yards to go, perfectly reasonable call to make. And I think, like you said, if there had been a different camera angle, it's entirely possible that he did get in. We just didn't see the definitive camera angle. Bill Belichick has been an advocate for many, many years for uh, having every single stadium, regardless of which TV network decides to have which crew there, have every stadium outfitted with goal line cameras. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Doug Marone and Tom Coughlin now agree with him because they may have lost that game because there wasn't a definitive angle. Hey, you know, the NFL now has the technology to have real-time communications, both video and uh, audio from the stadium to 345 Park Avenue. And Al Riveron and his crew that is handling the replay review process, they see all those angles in real time. They need to have their own cameras there, too. It can't be the responsibility of the networks to be the sole provider of the camera angles. And the NFL needs to move in the direction, especially because the teams already have their own in-house cameras, too, that can supplement what the networks have. That should be piped through. There have been occasions where what's shown on the Jumbotron is more definitive than anything the network's captured. They need to be more resourceful. Cameras are not expensive. They should be in every pylon. They should be in every goalpost. Hell, there should be drones hovering over the field with cameras in them. They should be able to blanket every inch of the field so when there is a questionable call, you can instantly find the definitive angle and you can tell whether or not a mistake was made on the ruling on the field and and I agree with you that that it needs to do that and look maybe Houston would say now nah, we're fine with how it is because for everybody who gets screwed by one of those calls somebody gets to to smile and and uh, say yeah you know that worked for us and, and that's a weird dynamic in the NFL MD. so let me mention this before I give you my call of the week the Jaguars would be the team coming out of what happened Sunday to be inclined to say we're fine with it the way it is Because I've noticed a trend when there's some quirk, some fluke, some screwed up portion of the rules that hits a team in a negative way, that team is more likely to be in favor of keeping that because their thinking is the next time around it's going to help us. 
So maybe it should be the Texans want to change it. The Jaguars want to keep it because the Texans are due to get screwed and the Jaguars are screw are, are due to get uh, benefit from it. All right. My call of the week, the Sunday night game, the fourth and three play with the game on the line for the Atlanta Falcons, maybe the job on the line for Dan Quinn, not that he'd be fired after only two weeks, but starting 0-2 with a loss at home would not have been the way to propel yourself into a, a season, the likes of which will keep Dan Quinn around. Calling that screen pass to Julio Jones, and man, it looked dicey for the first second or two before he busted through and he earned a big chunk of that $66 million by running 53 yards to pay dirt. But that was gutsy. That now, you know, I mean, you had to go for it on fourth down. That part of it wasn't gutsy. But to throw the ball behind the line of scrimmage, a screen pass when you had to fight through five yards to get the first down and then have it turn into the game-winning touchdown, that, and whether it's Dan Quinn, whether it's my buddy Dirk Cutter, whoever it is, that's the call of the week for me. Yeah, and you know, I always remember John Madden, when he was calling games, often when a key play was coming up like that, John Madden would say, put the ball in your best player's hands right now. If John Madden was calling a Lions game, he'd say, give it to Barry Sanders on this key play. If he's calling a 49ers game, he'd say, throw it to Jerry Rice on this play. I kind of like that mentality of uh, on this play, when the game is on the line, we want our best football player to have the ball in his hands. And so we're going to throw a short pass to Julio Jones and we're going to trust him to make the play. They trusted him to make the play and he made it. All right, uh, that's it for the awards this week. Let's get into some of the questions uh, before we wrap up. And and I'm just going to start plucking questions off of the responses to the tweet that I posted an hour or two ago, and we'll just answer the ones that grab my attention. First question comes from the PFTPM Posse by way of Gigi McDonald. Can you explain why the civil lawsuit filed against AB was filed in federal court? Let me give a quick answer to this one, MDS, because I, I believe that in this case— when you have a plaintiff who's a resident of Tennessee, a defendant who's a resident of Florida, yes, you could have sued in state court in Florida, but but there is a recognition in the court system of home cooking, and the courts in a given state would be more likely to protect a resident of a given state, not an out-of-state resident. There's no reason for the court system in Florida to siphon money from someone who is a resident of Florida to someone who isn't. And the court system, the federal court system, the Congress has recognized that there is the potential for home cooking. So when the two parties in a lawsuit are from different states and the amount that's in controversy is more than $75,000, there is an opportunity to go to federal court and take advantage of that jurisdiction where there is a more even playing field, regardless of whether you're an out-of-state litigant or an in-state litigant. And I think that's why uh, th- this, uh, this lawsuit was filed in federal court. If, if Brittany Taylor was a Florida resident and... Antonio Brown was an out-of-state resident, and these things happened in Miami, allegedly. I think she would have definitely gone for state court. But since she's the one who's out-of-state, that's why she went with federal court. And people say all the time, oh, it's a federal case. It really doesn't make a difference. But in federal court, you do get a judge who's appointed for life who doesn't have to be um, uh, reelected. And you've got a much broader jury pool, and you don't have to worry about who knows who and who can get to who. And there's, there's, you know, there's always the potential for some shenanigans with juries. And in a federal court system, it's, it's reduced the possibility of someone monkeying around with the jury. But you know what, MDS, one thing, bigger picture with the Antonio Brown lawsuit. Uh, the NFL is doing its investigation. The lawsuit's going to move forward. You know, just because we saw Antonio Brown play on Sunday, we need to be ready for the possibility at any given moment 
there will be a decision by the league, potentially, to put him on the commissioner exempt list, or by the Patriots. If they're doing their own shadow investigation and they find out something they don't like, they just cut the guy without warning. So we just have to be ready at any given time, at any given moment, for Antonio Brown to either no longer be a Patriot or no longer able to play. Yeah, and NFL teams have surprised us at times with how quickly they've acted once something became available. You know, a lot of people thought when the the Kareem Hunt video came out, I remember people saying, oh, the Chiefs will sweep this under the rug because he's a good player. No, they didn't. They cut him right away. Um, I don't think we're going to find out that there's any type of video evidence in the Antonio Brown case, but maybe there is something else that is going to become public and is going to really turn the tides and make people say, hey, this is not a simple he said, she said. And, And if that happens, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if within an hour of that, whatever that is breaking, the Patriots say, that's it, we're cutting him. And you make a good point in mentioning Kareem Hunt because the reason they cut him so quickly, they had interviewed him themselves, and he said, I didn't even leave my apartment. Well, there's the video. He left his apartment, and he did have contact with the the woman who later accused him of wrongdoing. So once you see that, you say, hey, you're lying to us, you're gone. So I don't know what anyone has said to Antonio Brown from the Patriots after this first came up. I don't know what Antonio Brown said to them. But if he said something to them, if they got him fresh when this came out and they talked to him and he locked into a story that gets disproven by any objective, verifiable fact, that could be the point where the Patriots say, hey, you know what? We're not going to cut this guy over a civil lawsuit, but... We will cut him if we think he's not being truthful, if we, not, if we think he's not being honest, and if we have concern that he did do this. So that's the kind of thing that could result in, you know, out of the blue, 5 p.m. on a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Friday, whenever Antonio Brown is released by the Patriots, and we won't see it coming because that's not the way the Patriots do things. All right, another question from PFTPM Posse via at Ollie Hine. Do you think Big Ben could retire if Mason Rudolph plays well? Your thoughts, MDS? Well, I was thinking along those lines, actually, yesterday until Ben Roethlisberger put out that statement where he was adamant, I'm coming back better than ever next year. I've got two years left on my contract beyond this season, and I fully intend to play out my contract. So he really sounded like he meant it. I say sounded. It was a written statement, but I was kind of reading it in his voice and thinking to myself, Boy, he means it. He's dead serious that this is not the way he's going out. So I don't see that happening based on that statement. But but you just never know. What if Mason Rudolph turns out to be great? What what if they go from 0-2 to in the playoffs with Mason Rudolph? Then you have to start wondering, who do the Steelers want to be their starter in 2020? This has shades of Tom Brady and... Drew Bledsoe, if Mason Rudolph does turn this thing around for the team and plays well enough that the Steelers say, you know what, the future is now. And I think Ben Roethlisberger becomes a potential candidate to be traded, just like Drew Bledsoe was. Now, there's a lot of chapters left in this book, but I don't think it would be about Ben Roethlisberger retiring as much as it would be about the Steelers deciding Mason Rudolph is our guy. It could get tricky for the Steelers. There's going to be a signing bonus acceleration. There's guaranteed money into next year, and you would have to find a trade partner, and Ben Roethlisberger would have to be willing to go. If he just says, nah, I don't want to play for anybody else. I want to play for the Steelers. Their only alternative is to cut him, and then you take a huge salary cap hit, and you owe him a ton of money. So Mason Rudolph would essentially have to win the Super Bowl for 
the Steelers to get to the point where they'd say, eh, you know what, we're going to stick with Mason Rudolph. But who would have dreamed that Tom Brady would take the Patriots as far as he did in 2001 after Mo Lewis blew up Drew Bledsoe and Brady got the job. But I think that what we need to watch isn't Roethlisberger, it's the Steelers. And MDS, here's the other thing. We were talking about this earlier today on PFT Live. As Tom Brady continues to perform at a high level at the age of 42, you know, he's committed to the lifestyle that's necessary to playing as long as he can. There's no way Ben Roethlisberger is committed to that lifestyle. Chris Sims interviewed him at training camp. Hey, what are you doing in the offseason? Oh, I just throw the ball to my son. And and you can see Chris's face. It's like, really? And and he had a big, giant ice wrap on that day, and he didn't even work that much that day. I mean, th- this is not a guy who is committed to doing everything he has. All you have to do is look at him. He is not committed to the lifestyle necessary to play football until he's 45. He's just a guy who gets off the couch and can throw the football. And you know what? He's realizing now his body's starting to betray him because just through two games, not even two games, not even six quarters of the regular season, his elbow said, nope, sorry, you're too old for this crap, Ben Roethlisberger. And I don't know that he's going to be ready to go 16 games next year. Yeah, and whether that's with the Steelers or with any other team, if Mason Rudolph plays really well, um, you know, you said it earlier, any starting quarterback has a de facto no-trade clause because if Ben Roethlisberger just says, I'm not showing up to any voluntary work for any team that trades for me because I don't want to get traded, realistically, no one's trading for him. You don't trade for a franchise quarterback unless he gives you his word. Yes, I'm all in on learning our new offense, getting to know my receivers, all that stuff. So you could see Ben Roethlisberger just saying, you know what? I'm not all in on this. I'm not going along with anyone else's plans for the future of my career. This is my decision and mine alone. So it's an interesting thing. I'm not saying I expect it to happen. My expectation is Ben Roethlisberger is the Steelers' starter next year. But a lot can happen between now and next year. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's up to Mason Rudolph. But whether or not Ben Roethlisberger is going to be the starter next year has a lot to do with what Mason Rudolph does over the balance of the season. Here's a great question I've noticed from Dean Osborne. How on earth did the Patriots go 10 years without winning a Super Bowl between 2004 and 2014? It seems unbelievable in every way now that they're in the big game almost every year. Do you have a thought? Do you have a take on how it is the Patriots managed to go 10 full years between championships and have this this second act of their dynasty that is more impressive than the first one was? Yeah, it, that is an amazing thing that, you know, it, it seems ridiculous. If, you know, you ask a, a Browns fan or a Lions fan about going 10 whole years without winning the Super Bowl, they're going to say, yeah, we, we, we know you can go a little longer than that. But um, it, it seems crazy, but I think the biggest thing was just running into teams that played them really well in the postseason, running into the Giants twice in the Super Bowl, running into Peyton Manning in the AFC Championship game, running into Ben Roethlisberger in the AFC playoffs. It, it, it feels to me, when you look back on it, more about what their opponents did than anything the Patriots didn't do. Because the Patriots were a real good team during those years. You know, even the year... Tom Brady was hurt. They were a pretty good team. They didn't, they just missed the playoffs at 11 and five, but they were a pretty good team that year too. So I wouldn't say it was as much about the Patriots as it was. There were some other really good teams that played really well on that one day that they met the Patriots in the postseason. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. They should have won the Super Bowl to cap the 2007 season and go 19-0. and They should have won, could have won, would have won Super Bowl 46. The Giants got them both times, so they would have had five going into that run that started in 2014. And I, we were talking about this, I think, either yesterday or today on PFT Live. That on to Cincinnati moment from September of 2014 – in some ways, that was the lawnmower cord starting on this second half of the Patriots dynasty. That They were backed against the wall. They had the embarrassing loss to the Chiefs on Monday night. And Bill Belichick got peppered with questions. And he reiterated that onto Cincinnati mantra over and over and over again. And next thing you know, they win the Super Bowl. You throw in Deflategate and how that pissed off the organization top to bottom and delegitimized everything they had accomplished. That motivation, it's, just, it's like it all set the stage for Bill Belichick to do everything in his power to finish the job of truly cracking the code on how to be the best team in the NFL year in and year out. And here we are, four of the last five Super Bowls, and really, it should be five of the last five. They, they, they screwed up and didn't get the number one seed in 2015. If they had, they would have had the Broncos come to them instead of having to go to Denver where they lost their only AFC championship game since 2014. And, and I just think something happened that year from on to Cincinnati to the, to the Colts football pressure scandal that was raised after the AFC championship game that really did push this organization to a level that we've never seen an NFL team at MDS. Yeah. And, and it's crazy to think that now this later dynasty may be the best portion of this whole Patriots dynasty that's now up to 20 years, uh, you could really make a, a pretty good case that they're better right now than they've ever been before. And, and that's an incredible thing. NFL teams go up and down all the time. The Patriots really never had a down. They had an up. Then they had a just quite, not quite up as high and now up even higher again. And you made the point not all that long ago that Tom Brady basically has had two Hall of Fame careers, pre-2008 and post-2008. And you could give him and Belichick a bust right now for what they did prior to 2008. If Ty Law gets one, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady get one for the first half of their career together in New England and a second one. I mean, Tom Brady has looked sufficiently different over the years that you could have multiple Tom Brady busts and they'd be unrecognizable when put next to each other. But uh, yeah, I, it's, it's amazing what they've done and they're going to keep going. And I think the Patriots are going to keep going even after Tom Brady retires, whenever that may be. I think that Bill Belichick has this so perfected and there's no one else out there that can match what he does. I think as long as Bill Belichick wants to coach MDS, they are going to be in the conversation for the number one seed in the AFC, for home field advantage throughout the playoffs. The Bills, the Jets, and the Dolphins think that all it takes is, is Tom Brady's retirement. I don't think it's going to be that simple for those other teams to have a shot at winning the division. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think Bill Belichick, I mean, we saw it the year that Matt Castle was the starting quarterback and they still played pretty well. And we've learned since then that was not because Matt Castle is a good quarterback. That's because Bill Belichick can just get the most out of his team's no matter who he's got in there, you know, will it be Jarrett Stidham who succeeds Tom Brady someday? Will it be some quarterback who's in college now, some quarterback who's in high school now? I don't know, but someday it will happen. And when it does, you could see the Patriots still being the class of the NFL if Bill Belichick is still coach. I think the fact that they persuaded Josh McDaniels 
not to leave for Indianapolis and to stick around in New England. I think that says something about the kind of continuity they're going to have. I think the Kraft family has a long-term plan in place. I, I think this Patriots team could be a very good team for many more years. And let me just say, as we move on to the next question, folks, the bar is going up on what will make it onto the show now that MDS and I are both chiming in on these questions. So come up with the best questions you have when the call is put out, especially on a Tuesday. On other days when I take questions, I may rattle through all of them. Today, though, I'm only looking for the best ones, and I see one from our friend Leapers500. Would you agree that something has gone horribly wrong in the officiating of the game? I think it's about pretending that there are objective standards that are across the board clear-cut, but in practice practice are all subjective weight of the body rule giving yourself up pass interference it's silly and I, I agree with that take you can't there are certain things that can't be made objective you shouldn't act like they are objective there's always an element of subjectivity not always but in a lot of these calls and there isn't consistency that's the problem where it requires any degree of judgment the absence of consistency is the kind of thing that draws coaches and fans crazy because one week it is a flag, the next week it's not. One week that last second runs off, the next week the last second doesn't run off. And, and that's the biggest problem I think the NFL needs to address from an officiating standpoint, getting all 17 crews on the same page about how they're going to handle all the nuances of the game. And it may be impossible. Yeah, and, and you know, we saw it right at the end of that Broncos-Bears game. I mean, there are... Definitely officiating crews that would not have called that late roughing the passer penalty that really hurt the Broncos. There are definitely officiating crews that would not have given the Bears that timeout and would have said, no, that you guys didn't signal it until time had expired. I mean, there are differences between the crews that you just can't resolve. The NFL hasn't found a way to resolve And it's frustrating if you're a fan to see it. You know, we see it time and again with roughing the passer where, uh, you know, Miles Garrett has had, I I think, three calls so far in two games where uh, all three times he kind of came up and said, look, I'm not trying to do anything to hurt anybody. I'm trying to to do my job. And, And I don't think, you know, Miles Garrett, I don't think he's the dirty player who goes out trying to hurt quarterbacks. But he's getting a lot of those calls. And I think that, that there is a sense in the NFL that we don't know what's going to be called and what isn't going to be called. Yeah. And, and, and one thing about miles Garrett, you know, he's going to keep racking up these flags and he's going to keep racking up fines and the fines get higher and higher. And uh, you know, at some point, if he doesn't dial it back a little bit, he's going to be like that defensive back. We wonder when he's going to get suspended. At some point, you've got to come. Whatever it is that he's doing that he shouldn't be doing, whether it's body weight, whether it's hitting the guy late, whether it's putting his head down, whatever it may be, he'd better figure it all out and avoid it. Otherwise, at some point, the Browns and Miles Garrett have to worry about him maybe not being available for a game. And on that issue, here's my here's my theory, MDS, on that last second that didn't come off the clock that that the Bears had. You know, somehow it went from guy is down, timeout to the arms waved before the clock went from one to zero. I think at some level, the word's been put out that they don't want that last second to run off, that they're going to do everything they can. If the knee is down with time on the clock, they're going to freeze that moment in time and they're not going to let that second run off. Even though it, it clearly did on Sunday for the bears in Denver. And it maybe would have last Monday night 
in the Saints game against the Texans when Drew Brees threw the ball to Ted Ginn. He gave himself up. He hit the deck. You could see the official running in, sprinting in with the timeout, timeout instantaneously. And now I thought it was just the Saints uh, fans and the referees wanting to get out of there alive. But it may just be that the mandate is we want to have that last second play. We want to have that exciting finish. And a field goal made or missed is a hell of a lot more exciting than seeing the time run off the clock. Yeah, you know, the Canadian Football League actually has one final play after time expires, which is kind of a funny uh, quirk of CFL rules. And I I wonder sometimes, is the NFL ever just going to adopt that rule that every game, hey, there's one more play after time expires because that that's a huge call that call of is there one second left or not that swings games i mean that absolutely swung the the bears broncos game and you know it, it's such a subjective thing where we see it called differently in different games and i think fans really lose trust in the nfl when they see that and you know what i like that idea And that would eliminate this clunky and because Peter King made a great point today. He said, I don't like the fact that they're officiating that last play of the game differently than they would officiate any other play. No other player. They sprinting in to kill the clock. That's the play where they're doing it on. And, and, you know, maybe if you did that one last play of the game, if it's needed, if the game's in doubt, if it's if we know that it's over, you know, it's not like you have to take one more knee or do, you know, but if strategically there's relevance to that one final play after the clock runs out, I could get behind the idea of doing that, then we don't get into this weird situation where they kill the clock and everybody knows they killed the clock when they shouldn't have. Let me do one more question, then we'll wrap this up. This is from Skull Vikings 407. The OPI call against Dalvin Cook from Sunday. Was that PI and was the review used correctly? Let me give you my take on this one, MDS, because I think it was offensive pass interference. I think the rule was used correctly. The problem is this is an example of the clearest unintended consequence of making pass interference calls and non-calls reviewable by Al Riveron. You, because of, of all the judgment that gets applied to a pass thrown down the field and was the defensive back pushing and shoving the receiver, was the receiver pushing and shoving the defensive back, there's no judgment necessary to see an eligible receiver blocking a defender more than a yard past the line of scrimmage. And this is something that no one ever would have been upset about. You know, if this had happened last year, No one would have mentioned on Monday, oh, the Vikings really got away with a lucky touchdown there. Dalvin Cook was blocking more than a yard downfield. Nobody even saw that in real time. And that's the kind of thing where you have a problem you're trying to fix, and the solution fixes a problem that was there but nobody cared about. So I think it was a good call. I think it was the right application of the rule. But the rule that they put in place to address what happened in the NFC Championship game should never have encompassed this. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think that this wasn't what was expected. And I think they will probably come up with some fix this coming off season that then turns out to have its own set of unintended consequences that that either they make some exceptions to what constitutes a reviewable interference or maybe they broaden it and say, okay, but also we'll also review defensive holding and illegal contact but then adding those will have some type of unintended consequences of, oh, that technically was illegal contact, but nobody was really thinking that on the other side of the field, uh, the, this illegal contact that didn't even affect the play was going to give the offense an automatic first down. It, I, I really think that the NFL just constantly puts Band-Aids on problems 
and then opens up a new set of problems and we just keep going in this cycle. Yeah. Um, and and uh, look, I don't know what the ultimate solution is, but the problem is the pressures on the NFL now that gambling is legalized in 10 states with nine more online and more to come. You've got to do what you can to get the calls right. You've got to demand more from the officials. All the officials need to be full time to create the perception the NFL is doing everything it can to get the calls right. And you need to use replay review in a smart way. And I don't know that using it the way they're doing it now is very smart. And at one point they emphasized in the offseason that this change for replay review for pass interference calls and non-calls was one year only. And they really went out of their way to say one year only. I don't think it's going to be back next year. What do you think? I think it will be back, but they will make changes to it that are an attempt to address some of these unintended consequences. All right. Uh, Well, here's an intended consequence. We're done for the day, MDS. Thank you. We ended up spending more than an hour, which means when you throw Juju on top of it, this should be about a 75-minute podcast out there. If you've made it to the end, thank you very much. You win a one-year subscription to ProFootballTalk.com. We'll be back with more PFTPM later in the week. Everybody, check us out at ProFootballTalk.com, and have a great day. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 